Well, we've come to the end of this series in Colossians, and some of you are probably thinking, couldn't we have ended last time? Couldn't we have skipped over some of these verses? Because as you read them, especially just on a first pass, uh, some of the things here seem pretty shocking. Perhaps for some of you, a little disappointing. Really, verse 18, wives submit to your husbands. Are we going to hear a sermon about this? Are we living in the dark ages? And then there's the mention of slavery. It's softened there as bond servants, but we're talking about slavery. And, and it's raised without call to abolition. It's raised without uh, Paul saying that, that slaves should take up arms and overthrow their masters and free themselves. What's going on here? What does this say about Christianity? Now, clearly, Paul is interacting with the world he lives in. The Greco-Roman world was a male-dominant society. Slavery was ubiquitous. It was some, some people compare slavery to electricity. You couldn't have thought about society working without it at that time. It wasn't a pleasant world, especially if you lived on the, the lower rungs of society. It could be cruel. But what is a passage like this that doesn't bring a challenge to that, at least on the surface? What does it say about Christianity? Is, it, is Christianity complicit in extending systems of inequality and oppression? You know, further, it has been uh, noted that what Paul is doing in this section is similar to what others in the Greco-Roman world had done in giving a list of obligations to the household. We have documents of people who weren't Christians, people in society who uh, ha have lists of things, these, these rules, they call them, the household codes. Is Paul just copying that and now bringing a Christianized version to it? One theory goes that, that Paul is coming to terms with the world he lives in. The, the, the way that that is often portrayed is that the church, now decades after Christ's death, that, that, that the joy, the, the excitement of Pentecost is gone. The, the anticipation of Christ's immediate return now gives way to the idea that the church, that Christians are in it for the long haul, and so they just have to conform to the world that this is his attempt to say to the church, okay, we need to not fight the world, but just figure out how to get along in it. You know, if that reading were true, then that would say, that would be a pretty damning critique of Christianity. It would say that Christianity is just a religion of the mind, perhaps helping you cope with the difficulties of life, but, but doesn't make any real significant change in society doesn't offer any challenge. Well, I want us to, to look at this passage again. I want to invite you to slow down, to not settle for a superficial reading that might uh, come to conclusions that, that you might misunderstand. But we'll find in this passage, when we see it, the gospel not only challenging us, 
calling us to something, in fact, hard to follow, but also brings a challenge to the world in which we live in. I think it, it calls us to rethink our relationships, to reconcile our realities of life with the reality of the gospel that proclaims there is only one Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, then there cannot be other Lords. With that, let's ask God to bless our understanding of this word. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for your word. and We pray that you'll give us wisdom and insight into what it is that you're saying to us here. Open our hearts to receive it. Help us all to submit to you, the one who loves us and cares for us. We pray through Jesus. Amen. Well, to make sense of what Paul is saying in this passage, we need to remember that throughout the book of Colossians, he has been continually referring back to the story in Genesis. The story of creation, and the story in particular of Adam and Eve in the garden. These allusions have been all the way through the letter, going back to chapter 1 when he describes the gospel, the message of Christianity itself as bearing fruit and multiplying, which of course was the task given to Adam and Eve. They were to bear fruit and multiply. And then very quickly he turns to talk about Jesus. And in his description of Jesus, he calls him the firstborn of creation. He says that he's the image of the invisible God. In fact, man is an image and reflection of Jesus, who is God himself. Colossians goes on to even call Jesus the beginning, evoking that very first word in the Bible. And then even into our passage in, in chapter 3, he had been talking about the Christian life and, and its distinction between the life of the world, their former ways. And he makes this image of putting on Christ as if he were putting on clothes. And again, I think he's evoking the image from Genesis, where Adam and Eve, at the time of their sin, realized their nakedness, and with it, the shame that was there. And the way we often do when we realize our sin, we try ourselves to cover it up. And we see Adam and Eve trying to sew together garments so that they could clothe themselves, but to no avail. They were still naked and ashamed. But God clothes them in a promise, in a, in a down payment almost, to say that you will be fully clothed one day. And Paul is trying to say to the Colossians, today is that day. The shame of sin, the guilt of sin, the stuff you cannot cover yourselves has been covered by Christ. That's the good news of Christianity. You're clothed with him. Now, he fleshes out all through that chapter the repercussions of the sin in the way that the sin of Adam and Eve didn't just stay with that couple, but then worked its way in society, and particularly about relationships. So Paul will describe it as the old self or the old man. And what he's saying is that the story of Adam and Eve wasn't the story of a couple that, that innocently just got duped by uh, a serpent, but in fact was a, 
a grasp at absolute power, at the power of God. For the way the structure of that story in Genesis works is that God created humanity with original dignity and value. They were supposed to be vice kings in all of creation. God, of course, taking the ultimate role as the king and lord over all, and then the image of God, male and female, together as those who have dominion over creation. And their dominion, of course, then under, uh, under them would be the animals. And then, of course, what we see in that story in Genesis, that, that whole structure, that order is, is inverted. It is the beast that tempts the woman, who then leads with the man into rebellion against God. And so that very uh, structure and order of, the, of worth that has been given to humanity and creation has been totally thrown up on its head. The story of sin is a story of rebellion against God's authority, rebellion against his lordship. Well, why am I getting to all this? Well, here's the point. I think, rather than seeing verse 18 as a complete non-sequitur that has nothing to do with the rest of Colossians or the rest of uh, chapter 3 in particular, Rather, I think, we need to understand this in the context of all that he's been saying in this book, and particularly chapter 3. These household rules, Paul is challenging. As we read uh, Genesis 3, and the curse in particular, what we heard there was a curse directed at family and work. The curse that God brings to humanity is that the, the woman, that she, the wife's desire would be contrary to her husband's. That childbearing, which had always been intended to bring joy, would now bring pain. That work would involve hardship and toil and indeed slavery. And so from verse 18 on, Paul is going to talk about husbands and wives, children and work. But his point isn't to conform with the culture around it. His point is to draw a contrast. You know, Paul has been making this point all through chapter 3, the old creation, the old ways, what he described as the old self or the old man, is what is dying or needs to be put to death. And if you're in Christ, you are being made into a new humanity. God is dealing with the problem of sin right at the core. And he's transforming us. And now he gives this contrast. The way of Adam needs to die. And the way of Christ and all those who live in him needs to come about. And it's fundamentally different. You see, if the gospel is true, then it needs to stand out in culture. It needs to stand out as distinct and different. That's the point he makes at the end of this whole passage. In chapter 4, as we see him talking about uh, how the church should relate to the world around us, what he calls outsiders. And he says that, that our, our talk needs to be filled with graciousness, seasoned with salt, that we need to give an account for the hope that's in us, 
We need to have a responsibility to those around us to preach the gospel. For if the gospel really is that transformative, if Christianity is really from God, then it should make a difference, not simply in the religious parts of your life, but even in the nitty-gritty parts of your life, in the stuff that's difficult, in the everyday things. Now, the thing that makes everyday things difficult, the thing that makes home and work difficult to apply the gospel in is other people. When I was a school teacher, I used to say, teaching would be the best profession in the world if it weren't for the students. <laughs> Imagine preparing great lessons, doing all the research, studying it, say, not having to worry about anything else. People are messy. People are difficult. People and relationships bring out the worst in us. And are ours any different? Now that we know Christ, is there any distinction between them? That is where it is important to see that Paul is intentionally contrasting what the Christian is called to in home and in work with what he has observed in the world. As I mentioned, there are these household codes that are all out there in, in these documents we have in, in the Roman world. And they describe what it was like in the, in the Roman household. And Paul, I believe, is aware of those and is specifically contrasting the Christian version. For while we get taken aback by statements like, wives submit to your husbands, someone in the ancient world would have read Paul and been taken aback by the fact that he, he addresses women directly. In fact, he addresses all people in this passage directly, including children and slaves. That's radical. The idea that these are household codes and servants would be included in the household as part of the family is revolutionary. It is the very seeds that, that undo any type of grounding for slavery at all. Well, Paul is getting to the core here. These lists were always male-dominant, addressed to the paterfamilias. Women, children, slaves, in these passages were all referred to in the third person. Paul directly talks to them, giving them dignity and worth. And he talks about the responsibility that they have with each other. Again, radical. Yes, children have responsibility to parents, but... Parents have responsibility to children. Masters have responsibility to slaves. Husbands to wives. This is not normal. It would stand out. If we were in the first century, it should stand out today. But the real key to this entire passage, the central point that Paul is making here, is that for each of these individuals, each of these positions, they all share one Lord. They all have direct equal position before the Lord as he relates to them. No matter what their station, Jesus is their Lord. That is significant. It is the great leveler 
God, as he will say, shows no partiality. In a world that we live in here, where the haves and have-nots are clearly distinguished, where we grapple and climb our way so we can distance ourselves from others, where we will look down on those if they have any sort of distinction from us in order to gain our own identity. Paul is saying that we all stand equal before the Lord. And behind that is the very truth of the gospel. There is not one of us who can merit a standing before the Lord with his own righteousness. All of us, all of us share sin. I don't care if you were in the church from the womb. I don't care if you strive your entire life to be good or kind to others. All of us have turned away from God's lordship. We have done exactly what Adam and Eve have done, creating ourselves as lords or serving other things than God. We all stand condemned equally. And the good news of the gospel is that God comes to us not based upon who we are or what we've done, and he offers us grace, forgiveness, complete justification, which means that our record can be completely cleansed as we follow him. Like spokes on a wagon wheel, everyone stands in equal position before the Lord. All who are in Christ now have the same Lord. And though God works through human authority, he doesn't subcontract out his lordship. We come to him and serve him directly. We can tell that this is the main theme of this passage because from verse 17 all the way to verse 1 in chapter 4, Paul mentions the name Lord seven times. Seven times in the Bible is the equivalent of putting it in all caps, with an underline, in bold, highlighted, with stars around it. Pay attention. Lord is all over this passage. And though he doesn't put it directly to every person, that's the, the point is that all can see themselves. Wives relate to their husbands in the Lord. Children obey their parents to please the Lord. Slaves work heartily for the Lord. Masters are, need to be just and fair because they have a Lord in heaven. Now, if Christ is Lord of your relationships, then your relationships must change. Think about your relationships. Think about those you are in contact with day in and day out, the relationships of home or in work. And when Christ is out of the picture, our relationships are full of dysfunction. They're ripe for it. On the one hand, we either avoid entanglements. We don't want to get too involved with people because we understand that the more involved we get, the more obligations people put on us. And so for some of us, we avoid others when we don't think we're going to get equal return. We avoid difficult people. We avoid people that we think are not going to uh, give, they're only going to take. 
when God is out of the relationship. We will easily break off ones that are just too messy. We even created a fancy term for it now. We call it ghosting. I don't want to talk to this person anymore, so no more texts, no more social media. I'm just going to disappear. Sadly, I think our marriages are fallen into this. Once divorce is on the table, conflict becomes almost unsolvable. It's always easier to go your own way. We look at conflict, anything that might be difficult. Do your relationships survive conflict? Do they? I have to admit, there was a period in my life in particular where any time of conflict, it was just easier to turn the page and move on. Do your relationships survive conflict? Do you look at others who hurt you and demand restitution in full? Do you demand that others treat you as well as you treat them? Because if there's any inequality in it, you're out of there. Now, there might be a lot to say about being used and abused in relationships. But we've gone the other way, and we've made it far too easy to detach ourselves. On the other hand, there are those, when Christ is out of the picture, who treat relationships as a source of who they are. They're codependent. They find their worth and importance in the fact that they're accepted by others, that the approval of others will, will, will basically dictate their day. That you start skipping a beat when others say great things about what you've done. But then, of course, the slightest criticism will undo you for weeks. We are people pleasers, lusting after praise. Do you need people? When you do, then your biggest struggle will be to find your own identity in it. We'll be able to distance yourself from what others think of you. And you'll be constantly needing to, to curb your opinions and curb your taste to match what will be accepted by others. You will lose yourself. I want us to see that in both cases, for those who detach and for those who, who uh, are codependent, both use people and make them objects for our purposes. And we both resent the obligations that get put on us. We resent the fact that people can make claims to us and, and on our lives. You may have seen that bumper sticker, yes, this is my truck, and no, I won't help you move. It's easy for us to be independent. But the gospel must challenge all of this. When we come to Christ, he must be the Lord of all of it. That includes your relationships. Because now, the no, no longer is the obligation towards others. Now, the obligation is to the Lord. But it's an obligation that includes others. And that's what Paul works with throughout the rest of this passage. He explores that lordship and how it affects relationships through different sets 
There are three sets of relationships each here. Let's look at, at all of them very briefly, going, uh, going sequentially through them. First, he speaks of husbands and wives. Now, again, it's important to see them as a set. That's his point. He's relating, he's showing how they both relate to each other. Both have a reciprocal relationship. But they both directly relate to the Lord. Wives are not to stay in the shadow of the husband. Their identity isn't to simply be a reflection. The wife is not the property of the husband. She is the property of the Lord. Husbands have no independent authority over wives. I mean, it's tragic that, that you could look at this passage and jump to the conclusion that, that wives should just do anything in the whim of a husband. Because that completely undermines the whole point of Paul, what Paul's getting at here, which is her responsibility and his responsibility is to be subject to the Lord. The roles are reciprocal. The roles are reciprocal, but they're not identical. The husband is called to be a leader. He's called to be a spiritual leader. And that leadership, of course, is in strict subjection to Christ's lordship. And as with each of these sets, Paul maintains both distinction and equality. Husbands and wives, children and slaves, they all fall into that category in verse 25 where there is no partiality with God. But let's think about it. In that reciprocal but distinct relationship, how does God exercise his lordship? What does it look like there? Husbands, the passage is to you. You have a responsibility to the Lord to lead your family. I need to say it that way. Your responsibility is not directly to your family. Your responsibility is to the Lord to lead your family. Your responsibility is to pastor them, to pastor and minister to your wife. Do you bring her the gospel when she's struggling? Do you challenge her to grow? Are you praying with her? Are you praying for her? The Lord has called you in this passage, it says, not to be harsh. Now that word is... Uh, perhaps better translated, embittered. And perhaps what he has in mind there with the embitteredness is the fact that there's now an obligation on you. Oftentimes it's obligations that make us feel embittered. And it's much easier for us to say, well, you know, let's let her take care of her spiritual life. I'll take care of mine. And let's just go in parallel lines. But that is not the call. Your call is to have obligations. Your call is to lead. And I say spiritual lead, but of course that doesn't just mean the religious parts of your life. It means that everything should be done in the spirit, in subjection to the Lord. In all aspects of life, do you know her idols? Do you know where she's weak? Do you know areas in the, that she needs to be helped? Do you know where she's gifted? Do you know where she excels? Are you making it so that she can flourish in life with what God is calling her to do? Are you responding to his lordship in your life? Wives, you have a responsibility to the Lord. 
Your responsibility to the Lord is to resist the pull of independency and self-sufficiency. It's the reciprocal bonds that are there between both that neither can be independent. You have a responsibility to be pastored, to work with your husband, to follow Christ. Subjection always must be qualified with subjection in the Lord as it's fitting in the Lord. But the question is, can you receive the word from someone else? Can you submit to the word of Christ coming from another? That's always been the challenge of married couples. It's always easier to operate independently. It's always easier to be isolated in your relationship with God. But there is this partnership. Even that partnership then is expressed in this second set. When he talks about children and parents. Notice he calls children to obey parents, not simply one or the other. Children, you have a responsibility to the Lord. Kids, this is God's word to you, directly to you. God here is speaking not to your parents. He's not saying, parents, make your kids obey. He's talking to you directly. It says, it is your duty to God to obey as it pleases the Lord. Now, I have to admit, sometimes as a parent, it's easy to use God as the bully, as the enforcer. Hey, children, God told me that you have to, God told you to obey me. And we try to bring the hammer down. Your responsibility is to the Lord to please the Lord. What does that look like? Well, it isn't, call, it isn't a call to make your parents' life easier. Sorry, I'm, I'm saying this with full disclosure that my kids are sitting right here. Kids, <laughs> it's not a call to make your parents' life easier. It's not a call to fulfill their dreams. It isn't a call to try to have human perfection as your parents understand it. It's a call to please the Lord. To please the Lord doesn't mean that you're the perfect student. It doesn't mean that you're the best athlete. It doesn't mean that you're the best musician or the most popular kid. To please the Lord doesn't mean that you're trying to match some image that is being imposed on you from whoever it might be. To please the Lord means that you're learning Christ. That you're listening as your parents disciple you and lead you in the gospel. To please the Lord means that as you mess up, as you sin, as you know your brokenness, that you also know that there's a Savior who loves you and has put you in a family that loves Christ and wants to lead you there. To obey your parents in the Lord is the best news for you because it's the news that will bring you to salvation. Please, the Lord means you're following Christ and not the temptations that you're going to face that will promise life elsewhere. Parents, you have a responsibility to the Lord to raise your children up in the faith. Verse 21 says, do not provoke them lest they become discouraged. Are you concerned about discouraging your children? I think what he means here is discouraging in the faith. 
How do you discourage your children in the faith? Well, probably one of two ways. Either you're putting demands on them that will constantly discourage them, that will constantly send the message that they are accepted, that they have value and worth only if they perform. And if that's the message they get, they will be discouraged because they will know that however they try, they will never find the assurance of acceptance. And the way they relate to your parenting in that will be the way that they relate to God. On the flip side, there are those who just give acceptance without any acknowledgement of sin or wrongdoing. That's equally discouraging to the gospel, because if they never know sin, if they never know what they do is wrong related to God, then they will never see Christ. If they don't know their sin, they will not need a savior. Parents, your job is not to provoke them. Your job is not to discourage them. Your job is to lead them to Christ. Finally, Paul addresses master and slaves. Now, I need to make the distinction here. Slavery in the ancient world was not American chattel slavery. It was not the same. American slavery started with kidnapping. Kidnapping was punishable by death in the Old Testament. Scripture is clear. And all that was used to justify treating people as property with racial inequality is cut to the heart in passages like this and many other passages that talk about our equal standing before the Lord. I'm not going to rose-color ancient slavery. It was bad. People were brought into slavery either because they lost in a military conflict and were, were carted off into servitude, or perhaps in poverty they sold themselves into slavery. But it wasn't the same, and we need to distance uh, that from our context here. But what Paul is saying here, particularly even including them in the household, is radical. He says shocking things like verse 24, you have an inheritance in the Lord. Slaves don't have inheritances. In America, we're in the ancient world. Paul says you have an inheritance. Verse 25, he talks about uh, he talks to the slave, saying that you will be judged on your wrongdoing. Now, I read that, and I'm like, well, can you, Paul, can you have said that about the masters? You know, it almost sounds too harsh. But honestly, that's dignifying. Their image before God is not one of victimhood. Their image is one who stands before a God who sees all, who will give them accountability. There's worth and value. I think it's likely that Paul spends a lot of time, more verses on this issue than he does on others, because he has in mind the, the, the very serious occasion that gave rise to the letter to Philemon. Onesimus was a slave that had run away, and Paul, who had discipled him, now writes to Philemon, the master, encouraging him to receive him back, but to receive him back as a brother and partner in the gospel. Revolutionary. But of course, what is this saying to us? I do think that you can legitimately draw parallels to the employer-employee relationship. Employees have a responsibility to the Lord. 
You're working not for your boss, working not for advancement, not for your career, not so that you could be looked well upon others, that you are a useful member of the company. Your work is to the Lord. And if your work is to the Lord, that means you're going to do things that go above and beyond what you are seen doing. That you're not just simply going to be a people pleaser. It means that sometimes you're going to do things that are just right, even if you're not getting compensated for them. It means you're doing it for the Lord. But of course, the flip side of that also means that you're serving the Lord in all of it, and you're going to draw a line when what your work calls you to do transgresses what the Lord calls you to do. You're going to draw a line. You're going to push back when, you're, when your work becomes the Lord and not Christ. Speaking to you, some of you who are in that battle right now, you're at a crossroads. You could either let your work become your Lord and dominate every aspect of your life. If you're someone who just cannot say no, you have to raise the question, has this become my master? Now, there are times that God brings us into difficult situations, just as he brought Israel into Egypt with slave masters. But if you're letting it become your master, the question is that one that Jesus posed to us, you cannot serve two masters. Which will you serve? For those who supervise others, you have a responsibility to the Lord to be just and fair. Some of you supervise others. You may have no earthly checks to your power, but you will stand before the Lord in how you treat those you supervise. You will be accountable to it all. Are you honest? Are you fair? Are you equitable? Are you gracious? God put them in your care, and you will give account on the day of judgment on how you treat them. I might mention one last set of relationships here. He begins in verse 2 and onward when he describes the relationship between Christians and what he calls outsiders. You have a responsibility, Christian, to the Lord, to those who are outside not simply to give an account, to season your talk with salt, but also, as Paul even asks there, for prayer. Are you praying? Are you praying for the kingdom of God? Are you praying for the mission of Christ? You have responsibility to the Lord. Look, relationships are messy. If we simply view things on the horizontal, we were just not going to enter into them, or we're going to enter into them in a way that seeks them to be our Lord. But you serve one who did not to count equality with God as something to be grasped onto, but emptied himself. You serve one who took the form of a servant, humbled himself, became obedient even to the point of death so that we who had nothing could then have everything. And if you know that one to be your Lord, then your question is never, 
oh, how do I get out of these obligations? If you know Christ who has given you new life, your concern is never, oh, what's the least I can do? Your question will constantly be, what else can I do for him? How can I serve the Lord? In any way, in any relationship, what can I do for Jesus? Knowing that he would use even our efforts, how small they can be, for his glory and our good. Let's pray.